from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Judy Soaringhawk. Judy is the product of a mixed marriage. Her father is Native American and her mother is white. She grew up as a Pentecostal Christian, but she had nagging questions even as she preached the gospel. She found herself in an abusive marriage and decided to leave Kansas and go to L.A. It was in L.A. that Judy ran into the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Judy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas outside of Kansas City, Kansas, at a small goat farm. It was an organic goat farm, so we ate very healthy, we lived very healthy, and, you know, it was quite nice as a, you know, growing up there. My family are all fundamentalist Christians. Part of them are Pentecostal, and some of them are Southern Baptists, and some of them are Mormons. <laughs> well, that's quite a mix. Yeah, it's a very large family. <laughs> and of the three, which were you mostly participating in? Pentecostal Assembly of God. How long did you grow up in Kansas? 32 years. What did you do after high school? After high school, uh, let's see, I moved in an apartment in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and worked for Hallmark Cards at the beginning, mm-hmm. and um, lived there for a couple of years before I moved back home. What were the circumstances that you had to live back home? Uh, well, unfortunately, I got pregnant and wasn't married. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit of a problem for the mm-hmm. family, especially. You had a, a son or a daughter? I had a son, mm-hmm. who's now 45. Yes, I did, uh, and I decided to keep him. You know, there was some issues around all that. You know, I had options, but I had an aunt out here in California who said she'd take me, and I had a, aunt, a great aunt in Texas who would take me, but then my father really said, look, you know, come home. So I did. What was the response of the church when they found out you were pregnant? They were disappointed in me, and they felt that I had really sinned big time. There was kind of questions, not just the church, but my mother also would say, you know, God can forgive you, but how could you ever forgive yourself for, you know, the embarrassment and shame that you gave the family and the church? And how did that make you feel? Uh, pretty crummy. <laughs> <laughs> More than just pretty crummy. I, was, I became pretty depressed about it, but I was still determined to keep my child. I was still mm-hmm. determined that I was going to, to do the right thing by myself for what I wanted. I was not going to do the abortion. I was not mm-hmm. going to do adoption. I was going to take care of my child. Mm-hmm. And my father, fortunately, agreed with me and said he would help me in any way he could. And did that impact your relationship with the church at all? Yes and no. In some ways, I mean, I was disappointed in myself because I had broken some of the cardinal rules that I had believed in. Mm-hmm. So I was very disappointed in me. But I also was disappointed in the response the church gave me. You know, they mm-hmm. kind of had my shoulder and said, well, I know you, you know, and just said, well, too bad for you. <laughs> I didn't get a lot of support, and uh, that was difficult. So, yeah, it was, it was probably made me think about 
what I was involved in and how they treated people who made mistakes. So what happened after your son was born? Well, my, my mother was still really angry. I think she stayed angry most of her life about it all. I went to work. Uh, I went to work for Western Auto at first and then to the United States Post Office. I worked at the Post Office. I just went to work and started taking care of my child, and I didn't go to church. I quit doing that, and I just said, well, I'm going to rethink who I am and what I am and what I believe in. And I really didn't believe, there was a lot of things I didn't believe in the first place, but I still didn't have anything else to believe. Because my grandfather was a minister. He was a Pentecostal minister. And I used to have some interesting talks with him, shall I say, because I tended to, to read the Bible thoroughly, and I could argue any point, pro or con, whenever I decided to argue, to prove my points, that mm-hmm. I could prove anything in the Bible that I wanted to prove. And so I was pretty skilled at that because I'd read the Bible through every single year since I was about 11. But how many times do you think you've read through the Bible? Well, once a year from 1954 till probably 1963, probably. And after that, sporadically, I would read. And what were the kinds of disputes that you would have with the Pentecostal minister? The main thing that I would have the biggest problem with because you remember, I was even preaching at 12. Mm. I was preaching at 12, so I had done all that, and I had did chalk talks, and so I was... Uh, what's chalk talks? Chalk talks, I would actually do a chalk drawing to illustrate a song and a concept of Christianity. And so while somebody was playing and singing, I was drawing the picture, and then somebody would buy the picture with, with an offering. I did that since I was about 13 until I was 17. So I did that for quite a few years, you know, for several years. And then I taught children's church, and I preached, and I did things on the street corner and all that. Mm-hmm. But back to the question about right. my biggest arguments was, the, the fact was, as I was told constantly, that the only way anybody got to heaven was through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that unless they knew Christ, they could not get to heaven. So my argument was, what about the people who had never had the opportunity to ever hear about that because you said you're even going to heaven. That was the other thing. You're either going to heaven or hell. You're not. There's no in-between because Pentecostals don't believe in purgatory or anything like that. You're heaven or hell, period. If you're not, you know, a Christian, then you go to hell. If you're not Christian in the view of them. And so I said, how can that be? You know, if God's a loving God and, you know, if you've never heard about Christ, how could they not be in existence at all? My grandfather used to say, well, they're like the chaff, which the wind bloweth away. And I said, that's not acceptable. You can't say on one side that you have to have, you know, Christ in your heart or you you die and you go to hell. And on the other side, you're going to say that people have never heard about Christ are like the chaff, which the wind blows away, which discount them even having an eternal soul. So that was one of the biggest arguments that went on for years. (laughs) And starting at what age? Probably about 12 or 13. So you were starting to question some of the Christian doctrine at that time? Oh, yes. Some of those things, and especially the status of women. Especially, you know, there was an area in First Timothy 2, 9, where I think it's in First, you know, where it talks about how women are supposed to behave in silence, in sobriety, not with gold or plated hair or costly array, but in shamelessness, and they're supposed to be modest and all that. And they're supposed to, if they had a question, they were supposed to wait till they get home and ask their husbands. And that was a quote in Timothy. 
and then there's the in Corinthians they talk about Paul saying that he would have everybody not to to be married at all, but it would be better for them to marry than to burn. He also said, "You behave uncomely towards a virgin, and she shall pass the flower of her age. They sin not, let them marry." So there seem to be those contradictory things, and I probably hit that one about fifteen or so. When I'm going, wait a minute, how can you say that you have basically have sex as long as they get married? And then on the other hand, you're supposed to be this modest and you're supposed to be chaste and moral and all this. It was a conflict. It was this dichotomous that I questioned. While you were questioning these different doctrine philosophies, you were still preaching? Yes, mm-hmm. I was. Did that at all create any kind of cognitive dissonance in yourself in trying to preach? Preach the gospel and then have these... Well, yes, but it was the only thing I knew. Mm. And I didn't have anything else to go by, and I had Mm. nothing else to think about. So you just respond to what you know. At the same time, I had an aunt. My uncle married a lady from South America, but she had lived with my grandparents for a year before they were married, and he was in South America. She was Catholic. And I was 16, and she kind of introduced me to a whole different viewpoint culturally. She insisted on me reading Latin literature, and she talked to me a lot. And and here I, as a Pentecostal, I didn't wear makeup or jewelry, or my skirts were longer. My head had sleeves and long sleeves, and there were certain things like that, and she was encouraging me to be more fashionable. So I also had that kind of influence that was pulling on me, because she was very world-minded. By reading Latin literature, I started seeing something besides what I had grown up with. Did this get you in trouble with the church? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, for one thing, the preacher would call me in sometimes into his office to get after me about one thing or another, and I would get angry, and because we weren't supposed to cut our hair. So I'd go home and I'd cut my own hair, or I'd come to church and roll my sleeves up to show my arms. I was a little rebellious. <laughs> but they never kicked you out? No, no, because the, in the Pentecostal, they'll pray for you. Did you leave your family's home after your son was born? No, I didn't, not, not until I got married. And mm-hmm. I got married fairly quickly, honestly, to, let's just say, the first person that came along, practically. Mm-hmm. It was miserable at home. It was every day my mother reminded me of my sin and how I could face the family. She had actually forbidden me to see any of my high school friends. So it became, day by day, it was very painful I was told constantly that no decent man would ever have me, so I'd be lucky to get anybody. So that anybody, the first person came along, um, my son was about five months old, I got married. And how long did that marriage last? Twelve years. Wow, that's pretty long. Yeah, it was very abusive, and I had to find a way out. So you took abuse for a long time? I did, but you know, I think that when you look back on it, it was, I had an abusive household in the first place. And just carried, you know, I married my mother, basically. Yeah, he was abusive. He was um, a binge alcoholic. He would be dry for months, and then he'd go off on a binge for a couple weeks. And he had 29 jobs in the 12 years we were married. And, you know, I had kind of believed that once you're married, you're married. And I think for a while I felt like I didn't deserve any better. So there was all those elements. And was your mother physically abusive? Yes. So what happened after you left this marriage? It was really kind of very sad because my mother did believe that if if my husband, and he did fool around on me, if your husband treats you badly, then it's your fault because it's a woman's job to keep your husband happy. So that was pretty tough. 
But I didn't tell anybody. I mean, I went back to school. I was working for an insurance company, and they paid for schooling, so I went back. I went to college, and they were paying for all my books, tuition, and all that. So I was working evenings and going to school days. Luckily, I took the right classes and made the right friends with the teachers and professors, and they guided me, and then I made some plans. I When I would get awards at work, because I did, I'd get make suggestions and I'd get awards, cash awards, and I would I had hid money and hid clothes for a couple, three years, actually. It took me a couple, three years of planning. So after about the ninth year of the marriage, I started planning for the divorce and doing it carefully because I was afraid that he'd kill me if I didn't do it carefully. So I did. I did it very carefully. <laughs> and were you still involved with the church during that time? No, I changed churches. I started going to the Nazarene Church by then. Mm-hmm. I'd already gone, visited all kinds of churches at that point. I, I started going to the Nazarene Church because my younger sister was going to the Nazarene, and she said, oh, you ought to go there. So I went there, and I went there for a couple, three, four years maybe. What did you study in school? At that school, you know, in Kansas, I was studying business. In the middle of all that, then I kind of ended up getting the divorce faster than I expected because I hadn't got everything all in plan, but I was offered promotions to the home office here in Los, you know, here in California, and I didn't want to bring the husband with me, and so it kind of speeded up when I got a couple offers to come out into the home office because they liked my suggestions had merited me a lot. So I thought, okay, I've got to do it, and I actually going to visit one of the teachers at the school, you know, at the college I was going to. I made friends with the sociologist and the psychologist, and we were talking, and they helped guide me, and they gave me books to read, and they gave me the name of a lawyer, and I went to a, that lawyer. And I, by that time, I had a, a ledger of every penny that I spent for two and a half years. So at about the ninth year of marriage, I started doing that. I kept a ledger of every penny I spent and everywhere it went, and I made a T-square accounting, so I had divided up the how much it cost for everything, and I had that all together. Went to see the lawyer, and the lawyer said, Wow, I've never seen anybody come in with all this. <laughs> but he told me I had to tell my husband I wanted a divorce, and I had not really wanted to do that, but I wanted just to serve him. You know? So I had to, and then and it was really kind of messy. It got very messy at that time. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I'm surprised that the lawyer would advise something that could be dangerous to you. Yeah, he also was a judge, too. You know, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, and looking back on it, you think that was a strange advice. But yeah. at the time, he was a pretty good guy, really. But mm-hmm. just, it was tough. But I got through it. So you went off to California? I did. Well, I lived with my aunt, who had offered originally when I was pregnant with my son, offered to take me in before. she. My grandmother had a cerebral hemorrhage, and she had come to visit. And I had talked to her on the phone, so she knew that I was getting a secret transfer that nobody knew. Nobody in the company knew. My, my family didn't know that I was transferring to Los Angeles. So she, you know, said, come stay with me. No problem. I'll help you find a place. She took my dog back with her. She handled all that for me. So I stayed there with her for six weeks, and then she bought a house, and I rented it from her. So she bought a house basically for you, but you rented it out. Yeah, she bought a house for me, and I rented it to Yeah, yeah I rented it from yeah. her because okay. she knew I couldn't afford the rents. So that was a nice change of pace to having a relative that was nurturing. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, she, she always said that God made a mistake, that I was supposed to be her daughter, and her daughter <laughs> should have been my mother's daughter, because her daughter was kind of an ornery person. Mm. It wasn't necessarily so nice. Mm. So 
so she said God made a mistake and that I really was supposed to be hers. That's sweet. I had heard about the faith in Kansas. How did that happen, Judy? In Kansas, I, you know, I said I worked for an insurance company. I was, I started working evenings and became the trainer for the entire region. In the evening, they only attracted foreign students. So I had this idea that I could train them better if I knew their culture. And I had this brilliant idea that if I, in order to know their culture, I had to know their religion of that culture. So if I studied their religion, I'd understand where they were coming from, and I could be a better instructor. So that's what I did. And it kind of went through earliest religions right up through every religion, actually. So I studied Hinduism, Buddhism, and every one of them, really. And then finally the last one was the Baha'i, and that's how I discovered about the Baha'i faith through the last guy. This Baha'i was an immigrant? Yes. Like I said, they were foreign students, and mo- almost every one of the people that I trained were foreign students. So I had really had somebody from India who was Hindu. I had somebody from, from China who was, you know, originally from China who was a Buddhist, and I kind of, like I said, went through each religion and studied it thoroughly, and then I understood how to treat people and how to approach them based on their culture. So there had been a Persian immigrant from that was a, a Muslim, and then there was a guy from Saudi Arabia who was a Muslim, and so when another Persian came, I assumed he was Muslim. The first night that I was training him, he said, stop, you're equal to me. I go, what religion are you? Because I knew that that wasn't the way Muslims would behave. He told me, and then he would never answer my questions fully. I kept asking more and more questions, and would you believe the two Muslims answered my questions too, very honestly and openly and kindly. So that's how I learned about the faith. For about two years, the last two years in Kansas, I heard about the faith little by little from the three, the two Muslims and the Baha'i. So I'm a, I'm a little confused. You, you described somehow that the... Baha'i did not answer the question fully? No, he would only answer just very short. Just his style, I guess. Yes, it was his style. It was a matter of, he said later, he told me, why give somebody a cupful when all he really want is a teaspoonful, and that's all they can handle. So he, he was really paying attention and giving me small portions so that I could digest them better. And the two Muslims, they were hearing about the Baha'i faith, and we know that for some Muslims, they find it difficult to accept the Baha'i faith because the Baha'is believe there's a manifestation of God or a prophet of God after Muhammad. Right, but they taught me the faith as well. They had known Baha'is, and they were friendly about Baha'is. They would tell me long things about the Baha'i faith, which was surprising. After I became a Baha'i, I thought, you know, these were surprising people. I ran into some interesting Muslims. They were very kind towards the faith, and even after I became a Baha'i, they would call me and say, Happy Nauru's, or they had, you know, are you observing the Holy Day, or, you know, <laughs> are you observing the fast? So they kept contact with me, in, in, even in California. Okay, so continue your story about running into the Baha'is in Los Angeles. Yeah, yes, and so my, my friend in Kansas that I had taught the faith, told, had taught me the faith, had told me, look up the Baha'is in Los Angeles, because there's a lot of them. I didn't know how to do that, but I went to the library and checked out 25 or 30 books and read the history of Iran and the history of the Baha'is and every Baha'i book I'd get a hold of. And finally, I asked my aunt. And she said, did you think of looking in the phone book? And I go, no. <laughs> and so we looked in the phone book, and I called the Los Angeles Baha'i Center, and they gave me the names of meetings, the firesides, 
of different places close to me in Glendale and then some in, you know, in Los Angeles, and I started going to the firesides. And just about two months later, I became a Baha'i. So what was your reaction to the Baha'i faith when you heard it in, in Kansas in relationship to your Christianity? You know, it, it fit everything that I had learned to believe because of studying all the other religions. I started seeing a single thread. So everything that I'd ever heard of, my basic core beliefs were there in every religion. And I kept saying, well, my goodness, I believe this, I believe this. So everything that I had believed as a Christian, I began seeing those fundamentals in every single religion. So by the time that I heard the Baha'i faith and heard that it encompassed that and said those things, then I struggled with the idea of Christ as Savior, the only Savior, and what I had grown up with, but there was a little bit of a conflict within me about that. But I started having these enormous dreams. One of the dreams was that I was going on an airplane and there were two Christs, and one of them was social and one of them was spiritual. The social one says, it's time for me to go. You need to be with the other one. I woke up and knew that I was behind. <laughs> so that's interesting. Uh, maybe you could explain to the listeners the, what's the significance of the one being social and one being spiritual. Now I understand. At the time, I wasn't quite sure. The social is just the basic social rules that we live by, things that people say, you know, that are social mores, probably. But the spiritual concepts are things that seem, are, are the constant thread through it, every religion and every culture. Well, like the golden rule, do unto others, is found everywhere. So those are the spiritual concepts that are consistent throughout every religion. The social ones are things like the laws of marriage, the, that's one of the big things is the laws of marriage and how people are married and how they do and what they do and who they marry. That's one of the social laws. Those are the day-to-day living. And those are distinct for every particular religion for the time in which they're found. Whereby, the spiritual ones are the moral things, the things that are just simply are consistent throughout every religion. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? I did tell my family I didn't tell my friends that I had that worked with in Kansas, but I sent a picture with one of the guys who was going back on, you know, one of the guys from home office going back to Kansas tour a thing, and I said sent, I sent a picture with him of my current look. When they got to my girlfriend who got it, showed it to the two Muslims and the Baha'i, and one of the Muslims says, Judy's become a Baha'i. They started crying and hugging each other and telling everybody that I had become a Baha'i. My girlfriend says, how do you know? And the guy from Saudi Arabia says, look at her eyes. I can tell. We can always tell Baha'is by their eyes. So they went around telling everybody that I was a Baha'i. After I became a Baha'i, of course, there were about 2,000 Baha'is in Los Angeles at the time. And so I had this whole bunch of friends that helped me along that I went to meetings and got more and more into you know, the process of becoming the best spiritual being I could be. Are you in L.A. now? No, I'm actually in north of San Diego, south of Los Angeles. After five years of being single, I got married again. After I was married for a little while, uh, my husband was got a job in San Jose, so we moved to San Jose for five years, and then we eventually moved up to Seattle for seven years, or north of Seattle for seven years, and then we came back down here following his job, and I, of course, had, by that time I had quit working for the insurance company and started freelancing. 
And that's what you're doing today? Well, no, I'm retired. I became a school librarian for a while. So for 15 years, I worked at a, a charter school, mm-hmm. teaching and becoming, then I became a librarian for the last seven years there. But I retired three years ago. I do that, and I'm doing artwork. I make baskets and, and weaving and enjoying my life now <laughs> in a different manner. What would your life have been like if you had not become a Baha'i? I think I would still be confused. I'd probably still be trying to go to church and, feel, and feeling really guilty for everything that I had caused myself and others. I wouldn't have been able to forgive myself, probably. Oh, I think my mother had a really good point in that point. Forgiveness of yourself was, was something that I would have not been able to do. It was only when I became to the point where I was aware of all the other religions that I was able to start forgiving myself. You know, for failing what I had put as my standards. And then once I was able to forgive myself, I was fine. But, you know, I'd still probably be in that. I'd still be be living in a small world, in a narrow existence, where becoming a Baha'i has broadened my scope of knowledge, broadened my scope of the world. I travel a lot. I get to see different cultures and get to be involved with different cultures and understanding them, which is probably one of the best part of my life. You said you traveled a lot. What's the circumstances that you travel a lot? Well, right now, my husband travels in his business, and I get to go with him sometimes. So other than that, I, the first of this year, however, my husband and I went to Israel to visit the Baha'i World Center. So we were there, what we call pilgrimage, and I was there for nine days, which was planned. But uh, other than that, I plan, whenever he goes somewhere out, out of the country or over a different part of the country than I've been, I go and meet Baha'is there and... So that um, gives me another opportunity to, to be growing and learning. Now, did you ever visit your mother again? I did. I, I've got, I went back a few times. Most of the time, at first, I was extremely poor when I came to California because even though I was working at an insurance company, they, don't pay, they didn't pay great. So I didn't have a lot of money. So she came to visit me once with my sister, and then I went back a couple of times to visit them on a brief moment. And then when I moved to Seattle, she had come to visit me there. Well, in San Jose, she had come once. So we had um, interaction. Yes, I talked to her when I was working at the insurance company. I talked to her every day, practically, still. Because part of forgiving me is forgiving her. It's part of that process. Have you seen any change in her? Not really, because my younger sister became a Baha'i about... A year after I did, she became a Baha'i. She came to visit. I had been sending her things about Baha'i because as I was learning, I was sharing with her, and she became a Baha'i a year later. And so I think the, the more change was when my sister became a Baha'i. And I think that Mother still felt that we were heathens. It was more tolerant. My father, however, was very tolerant. He came to visit me in Seattle I was trying to be real careful because I thought my mother had said, oh, he's real bitter, he, you better do nothing behind. So I didn't. And then a few days in, he said, let me tell you about my, how I feel about religion. And he said, I believe all religions are one. I believe all religions are striving for the same thing, so it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Baha'i, we're all going to the same place. And I said, Dad, that's what Baha'is believe. And he said, I want to meet your friends. And so, you know, we had good conversations for the week that he was with me. We went to see everybody, and I had a friend who had a goat farm, which made him delighted. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned you grew up on an organic farm. 
How is it that your parents were interested in organic farming? Well, not my mother, but my father. Well, first of all, my father was seven-eighths Native American. He is Cherokee Choctaw with a little Scotch-Irish thrown in. And they had grown up in the Ozarks, and my family, my Cherokee family, had migrated from Georgia to the Shenandoah Valley to Tennessee and then Kentucky and eventually the Ozarks and Missouri. And that's where they they were getting away from the white man pretty much. They were That's where they migrated. And so they settled in the Ozarks. But my father, it was just the old ways of farming, the, the native ways. And that's what they had done was no pesticides and all that. And my dad had issues with his stomach, so he got goats. And so that's what he did during, but during the Depression, he, he rode the rails and was a circus and all that. And he got to, he worked on the King Ranch in Texas for a while. So he had a little experience, but he got very interested because he felt it was the healthier, better way of living. So when I was born and I was allergic to milk, we, I drank goat milk. We had the organic farm, and so we were all grown organic way before it was very popular because, uh, you know, it was more the native way. And how did your father meet your mother? Very interesting. My mother's boyfriend was a good friend of my father, and my mother had this boy that she was in love with that broke up with her. And so they said, well, we're going to go out to the Haney's, which was my family's last name, my father's family's. And my dad had just come back from the circus, the season of the circus, and he was getting ready to go to South America uh, for a visit with the circus. And my mother's girlfriend took my mother out to the Haney's because she said it's a hoot to go out to the Haney's. So they all went to the Haney's, and that's where my father met her. And they met each other, and they were married like six weeks later. I mean, it was obvious that your father was Native American, mm-hmm. and there was no discrimination against that? Yes, there was. There was. My mother it was 22 when she got married, and it was old for... That culture, in fact, was her sisters were both married, her older sister and a younger sister. I think that she was just desperate to be married, but she didn't like Native Americans. And they, Cherokees are fairly light-skinned, so you really would have to know that you're Native, and then you, oh, yeah, I can see that now. So it wasn't like it was really obvious. I think that he, on his part, he said he saw her, and she was next to the oldest of, at that point, ten living children, they originally was 13 children, next to the oldest, uh, and, and they were very, very poor because my grandfather left that marriage and uh, after 25 years, and so they were just really dirt poor. And there was no Social Security or welfare or anything like that in those days, so they were scrambling. And my dad said he just saw that and he saw those kids and thought, I can be helpful. He fell in love with the children, the little kids that he wanted to help. So aside from loving my mother, I think he felt that he could help Mm. and that he could make it better for her, make a better life for her. Mm. And she was extremely pretty. She was a beautiful woman. So I'm sure he was attracted to her beauty in the first place. And she was kind of fiery. He was attracted to that, I'm sure, too. But she didn't like farm life at all. She didn't like it. It was a small farm, and we only had, that whole area only had one to five acre farms, and we were self-sufficient because my dad created a co-op. So the neighbors all grew different things, and we grew different things, and we all shared. And so she stuck with it, even though she didn't like it. Because once you're married, you're married. She doesn't, yeah. didn't believe in divorce. But she wasn't, I don't think she was ever very happy in that sense. It was difficult. You know, I think she had moments of happiness. I think she did not have a good life herself. She had a tough life. You know, her father was, was abusive, and she, 
there was all the kids, and she was next to the oldest, and the older kids took care of the younger kids, and they were dirt poor, and they had she had to quit school and go to work in order to help support the family, and so did all the older kids. So, you know, her, her lot in life wasn't easy. So you think in some ways it turned her bitter? Oh, she was very bitter. Yes, I'm believing always that's what happened. She never found herself. So she clung to things. I mean, and of course her daughters all disappointed her because my t- two of us became Baha'is, and that was a disappointment for her because she believed that her religion was the only thing she had to cling to. Now, your name is Judy Soaringhawk. Now, is that your given name when you... No, no. My given name was Judy Ann when I became an adult. And actually, when I was in Seattle, many of the natives there said, you have to have a new name. (laughs) And so they had a naming party, and they had a naming ceremony of the various tribes there. That's how I got my name, because I'm always looking at hawk soaring, because my grandmother always said that if I saw a hawk soaring in the sky... It would be protection, and so I was always looking for the hawk. Mm-hmm. So they were saying that sorry hawk became my name. You had a relationship with your grandmother on your father's side? Yes, very close one. What about your grandfather on your father's side? He was kind of an interesting person. He was a character, let's say it that way, quite a character. He wasn't very educated. He didn't have much more than a third-grade education, whereas my grandmother had had high school, and she insisted on all of her kids having at least some college. And three of my uncles had PhDs, so she insisted on education, and she was very, very bright. And she taught me how to cook, and she taught me how to quilt, and all the domestic arts pretty much came from her. My grandfather was an artist, a very primitive artist, but he was an artist, and he played like 12 musical instruments. You know, he was just pretty much a character, but my grandmother ruled the roost. She Mm -hmm. was... As in most Cherokee families, it's the, the mom that's the, in charge. So your mother didn't discourage you from your relationship with your grandma? I think that I was difficult for my mother. I wouldn't cry when she spanked me. It was difficult, so she was glad to, for me to be with my grandmother and be away. She would try to break me. I wouldn't cry, period. And she didn't know how to deal with me, so that's pretty much the reason why I was the one that was chosen to be beaten, is because... <laughs> I didn't cry, and I would just get angry, and I would cross my arms and look at her, and I had very long hair. She'd be holding me by my hair and and whipping me with a willow stick, which would cut my legs, and then I'd look at her and say, if you're through, I'll go to my room, and that would usually start it up again. (laughs) She didn't know how to deal with my kind of character, which is pretty stubborn. I'm assuming your, your younger sister was much different. My older sister, my younger sister, yes, they were very compliant. I hung out with my father. They hung out with my mother. I was in the backyard with the goats and the chickens and the dogs and the rabbits and with the, you know, with the garden and with the, the neighbors, and they were inside with my mom. And all my dad's clients were backdoor, backdoor friends because she wouldn't let them in the house because they were of different ethnicities. Because goat's milk, you know, goat's milk, goat meat, goat butter, goat cheese were all pretty much the... It would be the Native Americans, the Mexicans, the Eastern Europeans that would be buying that milk because we had a dairy goat farm. And they were the ones that would want the rabbits. They're the ones that wanted the, the milk and the goat meat and all that. So your father must have stood his ground in saying, this is what I want to do and this is who I want my clientele to be. My mother never worked outside the home once they were married. She had to tolerate that because it was a way of making more income. My dad always did two or three jobs. 
You know, he'd worked for, he was a maintenance welder for a paper cup factory, and he was a landscapist, and he did the farm, and he even repaired uh, lawnmowers and air conditioners and refrigerators. So he did, and he did some taxidermy for a while, too. So he was always doing something to earn money. And how many kids do you have, Judy? I have four. And how old are they? 45, 43, 27, and 23. How did your abusive experience impact the way you raise your kids? Well, you know, it's when you know what the deal is, then you just don't pass it on. I learned very quickly that I had my grandmother as an example of being a really good mother. I had other examples that I could look at. And my grandmother was a wonderful mother, and, and I, I figured I could pattern myself after her. And part of it is just common sense. When I was living in Kansas, I had the first two children. Sometimes my grandma would tell me things like, well, this is what you think about. You know, she would never tell me, but think about this. So I really patterned myself more after my father and my grandmother. And so it impacted in that way where um, I didn't pass on that particular behavior. What was the reaction of your older children to you becoming a Baha'i? Well, they were 12 and 9 when I became a Baha'i. They both fairly embraced it, especially the 12-year-old. He said he always thought, you know, yeah, this makes sense to me. He's very logical and very, very bright. And so for him it was, he's extremely bright, actually, very high IQ. So like when I was going to college, he would read my philosophy classes and he would you know, basically tell me how to do the homework when he was 12, you know. He was embraced it pretty quickly. And are they nearby? Uh, my daughter's nearby, and my son lives in San Jose. So that's quite an interesting story, Judy. It's my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine today who whose birthday was today, and she turned 67, and I said, there are no mistakes. They're learning opportunities. So no matter what we've done in our lives, there's no regret. It's a learning experience. I wouldn't change a thing. I'm lucky to have gone through everything I've gone through and learned by it. And that's a good lesson to pass on to your kids, huh? Mm-hmm. I've even told one of my, you know, my kids sometimes, I said, you have to embrace the lion when things come to you that are horrible. And embrace the lion and kiss it right on the nose because <laughs> it's, it's a blessing. You just don't know it yet. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Judy Soaringhawk, a Baha'i now living in California. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
stared out the window the better part of a week She'd lived her life through him for such a long time When she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find She had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow She walked into the fire Alone and scared stiff Now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get worn Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with James is just a strangely wrapped gift What is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire burn or do we On my doorstep looks sad and forlorn The wrapping paper's faded It's all tattered and torn For a moment I wonder What on earth it might be Till I see the tag and realize It's made out to me It's gonna open the door a little wider now Lift me up a little higher somehow I used to run like the blazes Now I get the drift Someone who loves me Send me a strangely wrapped gift Someone who loves me Someone who really, really Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped
God, refresh and gladden my spirit, purify my heart, illumine my powers, I lay all my affairs in thy hand. Thou art my guide and my refuge. I will no longer be sorrowful and grieved. I will be a happy and joyful Nor will I let trouble harass me I will not dwell on the unpleasant things of life Oh God, Thou art more friend to me than I am to myself Myself to thee, O Lord. O God, refresh and glad. My spirit purify my heart, illumine my powers. I lay all my affairs in thy hand. and joyful being Oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety Nor will I let trouble harass me
little butterfly comes down to remind me the way it whispers on the breeze. All this weight I carry around deep inside me makes it harder to fly free. So fly, little one, fly. You're the answer to the prayers of every saint that longed to die. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.